goes well with where we're at in the series with James. And speaking of James, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. You always need your Bible when you come here. I preach every week out of the text expositionally, so please bring your Bibles. And that way you can be like the Bereans and check and make sure what I'm saying is what it's saying. And we apply it rightly. I'm going to tell you a story this morning as we begin. It was a, a story that was experienced by Mike Iaconelli, who was involved with Amore Ministries. Uh, he is no longer alive. He's in heaven with our Savior today. But Mike Iaconelli went to college at a fairly large university. And at this university, one of the courses everybody had to take was a speech class. And at this university, the speech class took place in the theater auditorium. And the auditorium was quite large. It had a heavy curtain. And the way that curtain was raised and lowered was a parachute cord attached to the curtain out to the center of the auditorium and dangling below that in a cargo net were 500 pounds of metal weights. So Mike Iaconelli was, uh, was going to demonstrate the law of the pendulum and so what he did was he took a cork board and he, he tacked a yo-yo string on the cork board and then he let the, brought the, the yo-yo up here and let it go. You see, the law of the pendulum is that as the object swings out on its arc and it begins its return to its starting point, it always loses energy and therefore the object will never quite return to its release point. So after demonstrating this and he turns to the auditorium and he says to the class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? To which the class said, yes. He says, professor, could you come up here on the platform? I want to demonstrate it one more time in a different way. And he brought up a table to the edge of the stage and he had four guys while the professor climbed on that table, bring that cargo net and they brought it right to the nose of the professor. True story. 500 pounds of metal weights right to the nose of the professor. And he looks at the professor and he says, professor, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And he says, yeah. And they let it go. And out over the heads of everybody in that auditorium, this 500 pounds of weight weight swung and it began its return trip. And just before it got to where the professor was standing, he dove off of the table. And Mike Iaconelli looks at the class and says, class, did the professor really believe in the law of the pendulum? Friends, that's our question that James is asking. Do you really have faith? Are you really entrusting your life to Jesus Christ? And is that faith springing up and producing righteous living in your life? Remember last week, James has shown us what this real faith is, except he did it from a negative perspective. Here's what we learned last week. Faith is dead. Faith is dead when it has no value and when it gives no advantage to those who are in need. That's dead faith. Last week, James taught us faith is dead when it doesn't result in action and deeds towards others. So it's dead if it doesn't profit others. It's dead if it doesn't spring out into action and move us towards others. And James thirdly said, faith is dead if it's merely intellectual like that professor. If it's only a belief, then you've got the faith on the level of a demon, is what James said. 
And so being the practical pastor that he is, James, who is writing to all of these Christians, all these churches scattered all over the place, undergoing immense persecution, James teaches them what real faith looks like, but he doesn't get bogged down in all the technical details. That's why I like James. And so he takes this coin last week from a negative perspective, and he flips it over, and now he teaches us what real faith looks like from a positive perspective. And he's going to show us two people, one a patriarch and the other a prostitute. But first, he has one last message for this imaginary person that he's debating. You remember last week I told you that he begins to debate this person who says that I can have faith, yet have no deeds, and it's still faith. It's still saving faith. And James is arguing that if your faith has no deeds, then it cannot save you. It must be dead. So he says this to this man in this imaginary debate. He says, you foolish man. Look what it says in verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is dead? Now let me teach you the Greek behind two of those words in that verse. First one is the word foolish. You see, the word foolish means empty. It means that it has no demonstration of the Spirit's power. Literally, it means you're a hollow man. So James is saying to this man, you hollow man, there is no substance of the Spirit's power in your life. Because your faith has no deeds. And he says, you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless. That word useless means fruitlessness or lack of productivity. If a, if a vineyard owner went out to his vineyard to inspect the vines and there found a vine that could not, was not producing fruit, he would use this word to, to, to label that vine before he uprooted it and threw it onto a pile to be burned. This gives good meaning, it gives new meaning to Matthew seven nineteen, Jesus' words. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a useless vine. So James says, you empty, hollow man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is like a vine that doesn't produce fruit? A life of real faith will bear much fruit, friends, either through obedience and through obedience, good deeds. See, somehow, and I'm not sure when this happened, but somehow the church has shied away from this word works. It's become so uh, anathema to use the word works because what if people think that you can work your way or earn your way into God's good graces that just through your sheer effort, he will save you. Of course, he won't. We're going to elucidate that. We're going to talk about that. But in the process, here's what the church has done. And our church is no exception. We've shied away from even talking about works because we're afraid that talking about works is going to talk about works earning salvation. But that's not what James's fear is. And so to prove his point, he draws on the examples of these two people. First of all, and here we go, if you've got your outline out of the bulletin, the first one is the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham, James brings in to this picture, the, one of the most famous prophets to the Jews, not prophet, one of the most famous people to the Jews, one of their ancestors, Abraham. He says in verse 21, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous 
for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now, unless I explain to you the context, I think you're not going to get the weight of James's argument. So let me do that. And would you pay attention today, this morning, you're going to need your meat teeth on this sermon. You're not going to sip this sermon down. It's not going to help you if you do. You've got to chew on this one. So stay with me. I'm going to ask that you work hard in your mind to interact with what I'm saying. Here's the context. Genesis chapter 14, almost all the way toward the beginning of the Bible. Abraham had just won a great victory. He took 318 men with him and he battled against four kings and their armies in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And he succeeded. And after this great victory, very common in any of our lives, when we have a mountaintop experience, he suffered a light, a letdown. And he was old. He was tired. And Abraham was discouraged. By the way, he was 75 when he even began to start out towards the land that God was leading him to. So he was an old man. And he still had no son to carry on his name. And it was, it was at this low point in Abraham's life that he has this vision. You remember that vision? And in this vision, God promised Abraham an heir, a son, through whom so many people would be born that would look, that look like the night sky with all of its stars. Abraham came out of this vision, and the text says this, ready? He believed the Lord And he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the first mention of the word believed in the Bible. It indicates what it indicates to us as well. It indicates a permanent trust. It means that we rest everything in the Lord's promise. If you're going to have belief and real faith, then it means that you rest in the promises of God. This is what Abraham did. He believed, he rested in God's promises with this vision and God credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. And as a result of his trusting faith, Abraham was declared righteous. But James, now listen, I'm going to bring you back to James here in a minute. Listen, James does not refer to this event in Abraham's life. I'm only giving you the context. He refers to one that occurred almost 30 years later. I wanted you to see the vision that God gave him, the faith that God, that Abraham put in God because James mentions it, that he believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. But listen to this. Here's the verse that James is talking about. Verse 21, chapter 2. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous? Listen. For what he did... When he suffered, or when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, Isaac was born. And Abraham was over a hundred years old. And God told him, parents, listen to this. God told him to take his one and only son, the one, the promised son, the one that he waited years and years into the twilight of his life for, take this son to Mount Moriah, where present day Jerusalem, to the spot where the temple is built today, take this son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Parents, can you imagine the horror 
And the sickening dread in Abraham as he obediently woke up early in the morning, he didn't tell Sarah. The vision was for him. The message was for him. It wasn't for Sarah. She wouldn't understand. He went and he took early in the morning his son Isaac, a bundle of firewood, two donkeys, or one donkey and two servants, and they headed out for the place where he was going to sacrifice his son. And when they got there, Abraham said to his servants, I want you to see the faith here. Chapter 22, verse 5 of Genesis. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Catch this. We will worship and then we, not I, we will come back to you. You know what Hebrew says? The writer of Hebrew says about Abraham's faith. He says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the son. But here's Abraham. He takes his son. They get to the spot. He lays the, builds an altar. He lays the wood on top of the altar. He binds up his son with a rope. And then he lays his son on the wood. And he takes a gleaming blade ready to kill his son. And while it's lifted into the air before it could come down and strike his son, a command rang out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Now get this. The angel of the Lord is speaking. This is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. When you see Lord in caps, that's Jesus, that because you have done this. Do you hear that? Because you have done because your faith sprang forth in deeds, because you have done this and not, have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless. This is Abraham's faith. It's a faith that was demonstrated in the most severe trial by his work of obedience. His faith sprang forth obedience. And demonstrated it in action. This is what James means, friends. Look in your text, if you would, please. Verse 22. This is what he's saying. You see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. That is so puzzling. His faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, you've read James. Probably some of you have read it dozens of times. Have you ever contemplated or meditated on this verse that his faith was made complete by what he did? You see that the Greek phrase working together, it's a play on words. And it means that Abraham's faith, while it produced his works, now get this, I told you you got to chew this morning. While his faith produced his works, his works completed his faith. That's why you cannot, nobody can, and the Bible never tries, you cannot separate faith from deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. And deeds without faith are unredemptive. See, our works of obedience, friends, they perfect and they mature your faith. You want to know why you see stunted believers if they are in Christ? It's because they're, they have no works that are springing from their faith because it's the works that build and complete and mature your faith. See, James is not here explaining how Abraham was saved. 
He's rather showing how his works, his obedience to sacrifice his son, his obedience to get up early in the morning and take two servants, his obedience to take the the wood, his obedience to tell the servants that we're going to go there and worship and then we will come back. All of that demonstrated that he was already saved. By the way, it was chapters earlier, chapter 15 of Genesis, the, when, when Abraham believed God, quote, and it was credited to him as righteousness, friends, that was the day of Abraham's salvation. That was the day that Abraham became saved. And years later, almost 30 years later, he demonstrated continually, that's the perfect tense in the Greek, over and over, that his faith sprang forth his deeds and his deeds matured his faith. See, James has already explained in his letter that salvation is a free gift from God. It cannot be obtained by working at it. Look, if you got your Bibles, James chapter 1. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So James has already talked about salvation. He's not talking about salvation here. But you know what, friends? Listen, this is puzzled. This verse has puzzled men and women all through the ages. Did you know that Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the epistle of James the epistle of straw. He hated it. He didn't know how it was included in the canon of Scripture because he didn't understand what James was really communicating. Here's what he says, verse 24. You see that his person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now listen, I've sat in your pews. I've sat in these pews. I've listened to Pastor Dean for 10 to 11 years. He's a great preacher. But sometimes my mind would gloss over. Don't ever tell him I said that, please. Because I told him I never did that. I know sometimes your minds do too. So I'm going to bring you back because you need to hear this in order to understand what James is saying. Here's his verse. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. But wait a minute, James. Hold on here. Are you saying that we can gain salvation by our effort? Come on, what about the Apostle Paul? He wrote in Romans 3, a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So you're telling me, James, that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And Paul's telling me that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. I don't understand this. Let me teach you through this. Verse 21, 23, and 24, there's three phrases or words in there. Consider righteous, righteousness, and justified. They're all the same Greek word. This word, commonly translated as justified, friends, listen, this is fascinating. It has two meanings in the Greek. Two meanings in the Greek. The way that Paul used the word justified is of the first meaning, and the way James is using it is of the second. Here's the first. Justification points toward a person's acquittal. Justification points toward a person's acquittal in a court of law. Here's what an acquittal is. It's the declaration, the final declaration that you are innocent of guilt. That's what an acquittal is. 
Spiritually speaking, justification occurs when you and I put our faith in Christ. And at that moment, our sins are placed onto Jesus. His righteousness is put onto us. We are dressed in the finest and the whitest robes of righteousness. And God views us as innocent of guilt. This is almost always the way the Apostle Paul uses this word. But James uses it in the second meaning. Justification means this in James, where Paul used it as a declaration of innocence by faith. James refers to it, write it down, as vindication. Paul is acquittal. James is vindication. Let me explain that. Here's what vindication means. Vindication is giving a defense that is grounded on evidence that proves a person's innocence. So here's what it means to be vindicated. It means that your faith, listen, is springing forth works and your works are proving that your faith is real. See, for Paul, acquittal meant that Jesus died on the cross for us. And the moment I put my faith in Jesus, then the blood of Jesus took away my sins and put me in right standing with God. It declared me innocent. But justification to James is that my life now is producing, my faith is producing works that God sees as proof that my faith is real. That's what it means to be vindicated. This is what James is talking about. You see, Abraham's obedience didn't acquit him before the Lord. It vindicated him before the Lord. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't know about this. Well, let me show you Genesis twenty-two, twelve. Do not do anything to him, Jesus says, the angel of the Lord, when his knife was about to come down. Now I know that you fear God. What he's saying is, Abraham, your works of obedience have vindicated your faith, proving that it is real. Therefore, stop and let me provide the sacrifice. This is what James means in verse 24. You see that a person is justified, vindicated by what he does because his deeds prove that his faith is real. See, the Apostle Paul made it clear that a person enters into God's kingdom only by faith. And James makes it clear that God requires good deeds from those who are in the kingdom. Let me explain it from a different angle. Paul was concerned with people. This is why he wrote Romans. He was concerned with people who thought that by keeping the law of God, they could earn their salvation. James was dealing with a people, a group, a church, believers whose faith made no difference in the way that they lived. See, for James, faith without deeds is dead. And for Paul, deeds without faith are unredemptive. You say that you believe, James asks his debater, then show me. You've got faith then where are the deeds that should be accompanying it? In other, in essence, this is what James is saying in this passage to the debater. He says, just stop talking about your faith and start walking it. Start living it. James says one more thing about Abraham that we need to bring out, and it's so comforting to us. He says this, Abraham was called God's friend. Brothers and sisters, the one whose faith justifies him, 
declaring him innocent and whose obedience proves his innocence, that person has a friendship with God that brings joy and peace. You know what that means? It means this, the living out of his faith won Abraham the divine position of God's friend. And somebody might say, well, Pastor Tim, come on. I thought all of us in Christ were called God's friend. Here's where Jesus says this, John 15. He says with a conditional statement, you are my friends if you do. You are my friends if you do what I command. Well, is this a workspace theology? Absolutely not. Earlier in that same conversation, he says to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. But friends, listen, if you're going to trust in God, then you need to do what I'm commanding, Jesus is saying, if you want to be a friend of God. See, Abraham had a faith that produced obedience, and they combined faith and obedience to mature his walk with God. Isn't that great? You couldn't get a better example than Abraham, but he gets another example. It's the life of Rahab. Look at verses 25 and 26. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous. There's that justifying, that vindicated for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Of all the people of faith that James could have drawn on, in his second example, he cites a pagan prostitute. Rahab was a citizen of Jericho. It was an ungodly city that God was on the cusp of destroying. She was an innkeeper, friends. Look at your footnote in your NIV. She owned an inn and had a side business of prostitution. She was an ancestor, how ironic of this, of both James and the human lineage of Jesus. They could draw their ancestry through her. And those who most frequently used prostitution houses in the ancient of days were traveling merchants. So who better for the two spies of Israel to stay with while scouting Jericho? It only would have looked natural. They're coming into the city from outside of it. Traveling merchants would visit the inn and engage in the prostitution. You see, prostitutes possessed information from their dalliances with all these travelers. This is how, this is why Rahab says what she says in Joshua 2 verse 11. When we heard of it, what is it? It is this God who's marching his people and conquering everybody in their way. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. So, so far, listen. So far, her faith, if it stopped right here, is on the level of demons because demons believe in one God and shudder. So if we were to end it right here, she's got an intellectual faith, but it goes on. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Friends, this is the day of Rahab's salvation. Her faith springs into being here. Despite living in a city that had stood invincible for hundreds of years, despite, despite being immersed in a lifestyle of debauchery, prostitution, in the midst of a pagan culture, 
Rahab believed that this God of Israel was the true God. She has faith. This is why her faith was immortalized in Scripture. This is why James draws on her faith. It's tremendous. It was her faith springing up that moved her to protect the spies from Israel. Look at Hebrews 11.31. Here's what it says. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. See, her faith moved her to risk her life. To risk her life in hiding these spies and giving them an escape plan and distracting the pursuers from them. Her actions, her deeds, her life vindicated, again, clear evidence, justified her, considered her righteous because of the quality of her faith. See, her faith profited God's people. It kept company with action and deeds, and it proved itself more than just an intellectual belief. You see, James ends his debate with this. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, So faith without deeds is dead. Friends, no matter how you dress up a corpse, it's still dead. Faith without deeds is dead and deeds without faith are unredemptive. They are powerless to change the heart of anyone. Months ago, our whole church, 200 plus, engaged in a weekend to learn how to serve, to learn how to identify, to learn how to find those who are in need around of us, around us. And we engaged in serving them. And you're going to see a video in the next few minutes that's going to help you see what fruit that produced. I want you to see that before we go into communion this morning.
church has been deceived, friends. It bought into the lie that you've got to study in Bible groups and you've got to get all this knowledge in your head before you start living it. And James is setting this straight. He says, you want to grow in your faith? Then let your faith spring forth in deeds because your deeds will mature your faith. Amen.